0: Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I am Michael. I'm Cameron. Well, Cameron, oh, two times Mm -hmm. in a row you haven't tried to somehow destroy me right at the beginning.
1: Mm -hmm. Just uh, give me your hand there.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's do the old. (laughs) uh, ah, ah, ah. (laughs) Bubblegum. Bubblegum? Bubblegum, chewing orange juice. <laughs> well, don't drink the orange juice. Yeah, bubble. Okay, okay. Well, huh, huh. I, I think I, I think I got dead zoned there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of, little bit of dead zoned. I guess we're just gonna have to. I don't know, wait for a languid several hours of time before we find out the relevance of anything that's happening.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw you with no hair (laughs) uh, in a stately manner.
0: In a stately manner. Mm -hmm.
1: But for some reason, you know those like weird 1950s sweaters that like jocks wore?
0: Sort of, I think I know what you're talking about. You You
1: know what I'm talking about, like a club sweater? Oh, yes. You had one of those on.
0: Oh, okay. Does
1: that mean anything to you?
0: <laughs> not in the slightest.
1: Okay. Well, we'll wait those hours. We'll find out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Today we're talking about 1979's The Dead Zone, uh, which involves, as you might guess, uh, a lot of weird details that may or may not come to anything. It's a strange book. <laughs> yeah. It's Yes. Confirmed. <laughs> I was like in in the show notes here. I have written. I have kind of a a small, but I think maybe significant history with this particular book. But I didn't know if you, Cameron, had any any sort of like thoughts or previous memories of the Dead Zone itself.
1: So I, I've read the book before, um, but as we, as you and I found out, sometime in the past month, I was definitely getting the plot of this book confused with insomnia (laughs) yes and uh so i've read this book before and i remembered some parts as i was reading it but it it had to have been one of the first stephen king books that i read and i never went back to it and um it didn't not a lot stuck so um
0: it felt like reading it for the first time yeah so what's interesting about my experience is that this was also an early one for me um this might have been like the Fourth or fifth Stephen King book that I read somewhere in there, right? I've talked a little bit of in previous episodes sort of um, You know reading thinner and reading The Shining and I think I read it pretty early on um, That was an undertaking uh, But then I got to the dead zone uh, Because it was one that my mom had on the shelf that I and I very clearly remember uh, Just bouncing off of it as I'm trying to read it like being like this is boring. I do not care what is happening like, no, no more. Go away. The weird thing is, I still, I I have to have read it because as I was reading it, I, like, there are parts of it that I remember very, very clearly, and then there are parts of it that are less memorable, but, uh, every so often I would get to a point in the book where I was like, maybe I just, like, stopped reading it entirely here because I don't remember any of this, um then, you know, I would get to like that that weird feeling that happens when you read sometimes where you like read a sentence and you know that you've read that sentence before.
1: Sounds like this book was in
0: the dead zone
1: for you, Michael.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it just might have been in the dead zone.
1: The dead zone. Zone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that was kind of that was one of the weird things about reading it again was sort of, First of all, reading it and being like, yeah, no wonder me at 13 did not like this book. This is not a book for 13 year olds, especially if you're uh, coming off of like the high octane, very Stephen King, like monsters and like mysterious forces and and sort of pure plot. Um, Mm -hmm. Because this book is just it's weird as hell. I'm going to
1: go out on a limb right Mm -hmm. now okay before we've said anything about the plot before Mm we other than saying the word a million times or the phrase i guess that's not a word um i think i think this book is really good number one and not just good but really
0: good (laughs) against my best interest honestly yeah so like uh, i'm I am surprised, but glad that that's the tack you've taken because the way I was going to present this was like going to grad school, especially (laughs) if you go to graduate school in literature, Mm -hmm. it breaks your brain in certain ways. And I think for me, the key way that it broke my brain is it made me uh, very good at taking like strangely constructed textual objects and finding ways to think about how they're actually cool as hell. And this book is like that, in that it is, there are so many things that happen in this novel that are kind of contrary to common sense, uh, (laughs) like what readers expect, what you're supposed to do when you're writing a novel. And the overall effect Mm -hmm. is really sort of striking and interesting, uh, I think at like a formal or structural level. Yes.
1: Yes, That leads me to my number two, which is, this is Stephen King fully formed. Mm -hmm. Like, every single thing that people like about Stephen King is here. And, but they're just in, like you're saying, they're in a weird jumbled up order. Mm -hmm. So, So they're just not done quite right yet. But it's like, it's like everyone's done this, right? You've decided to make some kind of food. And then you, you have all the ingredients in front of you. You got all your little food network bowls hanging out. You know, you got your tablespoon of, of uh, I don't know, salt. You got your, your Brussels sprouts. You got your little chopped up potato. Uh, you got an egg. You got it all there. And you follow the directions and you put it together. And it does not work. <laughs> it, but then the next time you say, you know what? I must have done that wrong. I got to do it again. And you do the exact same thing. You believe again. And then it works. And you just did something different, right? You're not quite sure what you did. I don't know. Maybe this doesn't happen to other people. This happens to me basically every time I try to cook a new recipe. That That's what the dead zone feels like to me. It's like I could diagram this thing and show you like where every other Stephen King novel fits. And what really made me, or, or not fits, but like how how the Lego pieces that are here in this book are put together in slightly different ways in other Stephen King books. And what really makes me think that is that the dead zone feels like his post addiction novels, like those mm-hmm. novels that he wrote in the, the early mid nineties where he's, you know, kind of working through um, being in recovery and all of that stuff where he's back to these kind of elements and without, you know, the, the full onrush of, of alcohol and cocaine, it, he seems to have a harder time putting it together. But I think we're gonna. I, I feel like you know it's a cold shot for several several years down the road. But I feel like when we get to you know Rose Matter, we're gonna look at this novel and be like, wow, this there, there's a lot of kind of structural resonance here, right? Um, and and well, like I, I guess maybe unless you have more to say at the top here, maybe we can do our like uh, our five sentence summary. <music> And then, and then we can talk about the specifics here because I think this novel is is a novel we can only talk about in specifics because, as you're saying, it's bizarre.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the summary is you this time, so take I, it away.
1: Yep, I'm noticing that for the first time this very moment. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, for what it's <clears throat> worth, I was thinking ahead of time. This is how I'm going to jinx you. I was thinking this book is actually perfect for the Kunzelman style of summary. So, I'm thinking.
1: I've got... Well, I don't have it. I'm just going to do it. I'm, I'm doing it live. Okay. Johnny Smith is a teacher who one time, when he was a child, fell down and hit his head on the ice. Later, when he is in his 20s, he and his fellow teacher girlfriend, Sarah, go to the fair... And he has superpowers that he uses to mind read the casino thing, comma, and then he gets in a car accident. (laughs) Johnny Smith is in a coma for five years, question mark.
0: (laughs) Is it five years? It's weirdly enough. It's like four and a half years. Okay. Well, close enough. I know it's like it's almost five. It's just like, why didn't you just make it five? Why is it four and a half anyway? <laughs> so uh, okay, I'm at three. I'm at three here. Yes.
1: <clears throat> he uses his super. Oh, wait, hold on. He wakes up with even more superpowers, <laughs> and uses those superpowers to do things such as solve murders. Uh huh. And that I, that and that's kind of it. And <laughs> so you got sentence. another sentence. <laughs> yeah, here, one more so. sentence. I was trying to think of other things he did other than solve murders, but that's kind of all I did. Um, final sentence. He decides to shoot a politician. Because he knows that that politician will one day cause a nuclear war. Open parentheses. The politician uses a child as a human shield mm-hmm. and is not elected president. Close parentheses, period. <laughs> I mean, yes. That's why. Oh, he also dies, but I don't. I don't think that needs to be in the summary.
0: Yeah. No. (laughs) Uh, You mean Johnny dies, right?
1: Yes, Johnny dies. Yeah, yeah. Johnny. I guess the. I guess uh, Stilson dies at some point.
0: Yeah. In theory, in the future. Also, the baby does not die, right? Like Mm -hmm, the baby does not get mm -hmm. shot. It is just.
1: (laughs) It's true. Well, again, we don't. We don't know
0: that in the future. I guess we don't know where he goes now that now that Johnny's uh, intervened in the time stream.
1: Yeah, who could know? But yeah, that's that's basically it. It's uh, it, it, There's a lot of stuff that happens in the middle. I mean, my book is nearly 500 pages. No, it's more than 500 pages, actually. But um, there are not that many plot beats, you know, as far as big stuff that happens in the book. And it's mostly a in-depth explanation of the things that I just talked about and, like, weird asides and, like, character studies and all kinds of stuff like that. But again, I think that's what we think is kind of Stephen Kingy. I I don't know. I mean, what's your, what's your, uh, what's Michael's uh, big idea here?
0: Well, uh, this novel doesn't really have a traditional structure in the sense of like, introducing a person in a context like here's a little hook for that context that's going to make it interesting we escalate to kind of a midpoint where there's a kind of big turn and then uh, we follow through on that turn up through up through the climax and sort of the, the end of things right there to put it another way um if you ask someone what the dead zone is about because this is this is not maybe the the most famous king book, but I think it's it's well known enough, right It's one that like family guy will make a joke about, and enough people get the joke, right? People watching family Guy uh, will get dead zone jokes is there a f fa- oh, hold on, wait, wait what? a minute is there is there a family guy dead zone joke <laughs> really oh I don't know right oh, okay but okay. like <laughs> but like one hundred percent right this is that's <laughs> yeah, like, sure like a family guy cutaway gag could reference like the what what people would say this book is about, is about a man who goes into a coma, wakes up from the coma. He has precognitive powers. He can see the future when he uh, touches other people. He'll see a like glimpse of that person's future. He doesn't see the whole thing, right? He just sees details, Um, but he gets a good idea of what's going on. And he ends up shaking the hand of a politician at at a rally. This politician is a a sort of newcomer to the scene. Uh, He's very controversial. He's a populist. And Johnny has a vision of him starting a nuclear war. And so he spends sort of the back third of the book thinking through, like, well, what do I do now that I have pretty good evidence that this guy's going to uh, start a nuclear war? Or not even evidence, right? Now that I have a sense that this guy's going to do nuclear war, there's also this like weird plot in the middle, as you say, where he solves murders. He becomes a consultant on a serial killer case. And you can imagine a version of this story where like Johnny goes into the coma, he wakes up, the serial killer thing takes up kind of the middle portion as he like grapples with his powers and sort of, you know, learns to reckon with them. And then the the back end is, is kind of the, the politician plot line. But none of that is actually paced in that way. It is like uh, weird tangents and digressions, and uh, one sort of thought that I would uh, throw to you um, is that if you took Carrie, if you go back to the to the first episode of this, right, King's first novel, Carrie, uh, that book is. Told from this perspective of always ticking down to something that happened on prom night, and it's told from all of these perspectives from all of these different characters. But it also has all of the uh, the epistolary elements, uh, the letters and newspaper clippings, and and uh, the transcripts from like the um, trials that happened afterward and all that, the the, the government commissions and stuff. Um, If you took out all the epistolary, but like replaced all of it with like stuff written about those characters and from their perspectives and just had this weird morass of a bunch of people who are kind of living in the same general area and have lives running in parallel. um, But leading up to nothing, apparently in particular, instead of something very clear and carry, uh, this is what you get with the dead zone. Like, it's hard to describe, and it is probably outside of straight-up experimental literature. Like, w- one of the weirdest novels I think I've ever read in, in terms of form and structure.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of remediation of Carrie going on here and rethinking of of the idea. And I think I would push it even further than you just did, because the, the big maneuver here is that, you know, in Carrie, we know that that we're going somewhere right mm-hmm. we know we're going to like the carrie white event the big move here is that the main character always knows we're headed toward the big whatever event right and it changes several times over the course of the um uh over the course of the novel uh, and sometimes it's not an event that's going to happen sometimes it's events that did happen right so there's the serial killer plot where it's not really precognitive anymore right it's this like I don't know something else. It's g- general TK stuff, <laughs> or or, or uh, you know psychic stuff. Um, but but it, it's something to do with like or, or part of what's interesting. I guess is that we have a POV character, not just the narratorial voice, but the POV character who is directing us toward weird stuff that's about to happen. And it makes a lot of sense to me, especially on on you know reading it through and, and paying attention attention to it for the podcast. Like this fits so perfectly into something like the Dead Zone TV show. Like you can you can easily see reading this and being like, oh yeah, you could just turn this into a character who does things multiple times. And it almost feels like King wanted to do that himself and had and had to kill Johnny Smith at the end in order to prevent him from doing that.
0: Yeah, the the first half of the novel, aside from certain character point of views that we jump into, um, when it's primarily about johnny and his life it is very much a sort of uh, bourgeois melodrama right it's about uh, so we start out with johnny being this teacher he's a young teacher he's uh, popular popular with his students uh he has his uh, girlfriend who is also a teacher her name is sarah uh and they go to uh the the like fun fair and as you said, he he uh, uses his sud- like a, he has like this weird like sudden onset of his psychic powers where he can uh, take like he's at the wheel of fortune and he can call the numbers. He knows every single uh, number that's coming up, and he ends up taking the carny for like something like something like five thousand dollars in in today's money. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's like the guy's entire night's uh, yeah. you know collection at this little casino gambling thing. Yeah, so that's happening, but also, like, sort of just by chance, Sarah feels very sick, and she's like, I think I ate, she's had a hot dog, so she thinks she ate a bad hot dog, and she has decided, they've just, they've been dating for just a couple weeks, um, but she has decided, uh, and to be clear, uh, we're in her point of view from the beginning of the novel at this, at this kind of juncture, um, she is saying that uh, or she's decided that she is going to sleep with johnny for the first time right sort of like take like their relationship is kind of going to move to the to the next phase Um, but then she feels sick so she wants to go home and he's not going to spend the night because she's like got food poisoning or whatever so he takes the cab and it turns out that there are some kids like drag racing and they hit the cab and he's in his coma and their relationship falls apart and so, for the first kind of half of the book, uh or so the the engine that is driving Johnny's point of view is kind of the the psychological and emotional ramifications of like a life lost, right? There was a way that his life could have gone, and we get Sarah's point of view again, so right she she understands too, because by the time he's out of the coma, she's married someone else, um they have a kid uh and they both kind of again, I said it's uh, it's bourgeois, right? It's a uh, the sort of romantic uh entanglement that is inconvenient but still very passionate. Like, what could our lives have been? What have we lost? What do we mean to one another? And also, right, this is why I did not care about this when I was a 13 year old boy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, same. And I think that's why I don't remember it, right? It's uh-huh. like, you know, I was 12, 13, something like that when when I read it. But reading it this time, you're 100% right. And I would go even further than like, you know, bourgeois romance. I mean, it's melodrama. Mm-hmm. It is high melodrama. And it's uh, Stephen King's method, you know, that we've talked about several times. This kind of Kingian turn of phrase works so perfectly for melodrama. I mean, it really, I, I wouldn't say I like teared up while I was reading it. But, you know, melodrama works because melodrama works, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it gets you in its affects and God. So like this is on page 55. I just want to read a little bit. It's at the end of uh, what you're talking about. So they're back at, uh, at her apartment and he's about to leave to get in this cab uh, when he has his accident. And uh, um, he says uh, he's leaving. He says, I'll call, he said, and kissed her face gently. You sure you don't want me to hang around? Suddenly she did, but she shook her head. Call me, she said. Period three, he promised. He went to the door. Johnny? He turned back. I love you, Johnny, she said, and his face lit up like a lamp. He blew a kiss. Feel better, he said, and we'll talk. She nodded, but it was four and a half years before she talked to Johnny Smith again. Like, that Mm -hmm. fucking works. Are you kidding me? Like... Uh, that's such a and and like i said it's just melodrama right like mm-hmm. that's the it's thin paper thin but that the kind of paper thinness the willingness to have that that clear emotion there and then that kingian ending right it was four and a half years before she talked to johnny smith again like that's that's the stephen king voice so clear mm-hmm. coming right out of that thing and it just it goes for me
0: i'm I, I was really impressed with it but anyway
1: sorry oh um, no i think the,
0: I think that's a, uh, like it's a great point because then what gets really weird is that once Johnny is out of the coma, he kind of like that, that plot, right. The melodrama plot with Sarah continues, but there's also all of these kind of other plots that Johnny is falling into. And so, uh, there's a small town in Maine called Castle Rock and we will, we will go to Castle Rock a couple times, but this is our first time there. And there is a person there who called the Castle Rock Strangler, right? He's, uh, killing, um, women, uh, around town. Uh, it's sort of very clearly modeled on the Boston Strangler, uh, that case, which, uh, sort of infamously they brought in a psychic to consult, to, to divine, uh, the, the murderer's identity. Um, hmm. so Johnny gets roped into, uh, the Castle Rock, uh, murder plot. And as you're saying, right, uh, when he, when he goes to Castle Rock or rather actually when, George Bannerman, the sheriff of Castle Rock, shows up, and he's like, "Hey there, I'm a you know sheriff from this small town, and this isn't totally new to the reader, right? Because we've gotten point of view chapters from the serial killer, right? We don't know his name, but we've seen him at work. Uh, so the the sheriff shows up and he's like, "I'm from this small town in Maine, and I'm sure you've heard about these murders. Uh, you know, I would like your help." And it feels like old pulp stories right it feels like almost Mm -hmm. like you've walked into a fix-up novel uh which is when pulp writers (laughs) uh in sort of the the 40s and 50s would have uh recurring characters across a set of stories and you would publish say like three longish stories about a, a certain character um In whatever magazine. And then you would take those stories and you would put them together and you would uh, do a sort of rewrite and edit them together. So they kind of had some connective tissue between them and you would sell them then as a novel and they called that a fix up. Uh, So you end up with lots of novels that are about uh, individuals who have particular talents that lend themselves to episodic adventures. So say someone like a psychic who consults on murder cases if when I got to that part in this book, it felt like you know Stephen King had this entire alternative uh way this could have gone, where we just got you know story after story of Johnny Smith, psychic detective.
1: Yeah, a hundred. I was literally going to say right before you said the word fix up, I was like, it feels like a, a fix up novel, and uh. I, I mean, Stephen King at this time in '79, because this is 1979, Mm -hmm. um, he is working. He's working on a fix-up novel, right? Or one is just or is about to come out. The Gunslinger is a fix-up, and I and so I wonder. He obviously knows what they are. I I think it's probably hard in the 1970s to be kind of a genre fan and not be aware of the fix-up in a general sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But but yeah, it, it kind of almost feels like he's working from the other end of like. What, what kind of scaffolding would you have to do in order to make a thing that feels like a fix-up novel? Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I don't, you know, I don't think that there's that much intention to it. But it, 100% and, and it's like, what can Johnny Smith do? What's in Johnny Smith's set of talents? He could go and consult on a serial killer, uh, you know, uh, serial killer investigation. He could teach someone how to read. Mm-hmm. He, he could go work for the Department of Public Works in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing, dude? Or in Arizona, he's somewhere out west. Um, it, it's bizarre, absolutely bizarre kind of, of construction there. And, and as you're saying, too, there's also these, for each of these kind of individual plots, they all have their own other POV character. Mm-hmm. So, and it's all intermingled, right? So sometimes we're getting POV from, from Sarah and eventually about, you know, two thirds of the way from the, through the novel that falls off because they kind of realize that they can never be together. And it it, it truly is kind of breaking off. It kind of goes away and disintegrates. Um, but there's also POV from Stilson who ends up being the politician at the end of the book. And there's POV from this murderer. Um, and... You don't know how any of these things relate to one another for the first half of the book. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't really have a sense of anything building until Johnny's life intersects their lives, right? And then it's like, oh, okay, that's who that person was. And... I, I think you're right at the beginning when you're talking about how weird and experimental it feels because this is not how you write a book. You know, I don't think anyone would advise someone <laughs> no. to write a book as like a jumble of perspectives until the plot kind of runs into them. And then it makes sense out of like what perspective you were seeing. Um, but it does work. I like it. it's not confusing or anything like that. And when those characters come in and then leave again, because they kind of like get processed through Johnny's story. You do feel or at least I felt like a sense of accomplishment or like, uh, you know, that Johnny had accomplished something. I was like, oh, yeah, you have pared down this novel. And now there's just you and this one other thing to do. It's it's very um, I don't know. It feels like a bunch of branches that slowly get pruned off as the Mm -hmm. novel goes forward until it's the very end. And then it's just Johnny by himself, basically. And then he dies. So um, I I think it works in surprising ways, actually. Um, that it would be interesting to see someone, someone else try to do this on purpose, but I've never read another novel that tries to kind of clockwork itself in that way.
0: Yeah. So another thing that I guess I want to put forward about this book, uh, it's, uh, it's similar to what we've talked about so far, which is kind of this like meta level concern with how it's constructed. Um, but aside from like the generalities of how novels work, the other thing that is really interesting here is that, uh, This is the book where you watch Stephen King lap himself, right? (laughs) Like, by which I mean um, everything we've read up until this point, and this actually I think would include the Bachman books, has felt uh, kind of distinct or like pushing into something unique uh, in, in in a broader or more fundamental way than the thing that had come before it. Um, And this is not me trying to accuse this novel of like lack of imagination, because actually this is uh, to dip a little bit into the context of how this was written. um, This did come at a point where King felt like he was retreading himself. And actually, specifically, he felt like he was retreading himself with Firestarter, which is the next book after this one. Uh, But I think because of like little like like psychic girl who causes destruction or something. Um, So he actually. Uh, puts off Firestarter, which he can't complete, and starts writing uh, The Dead Zone, which he has uh, also tried to start writing at least, I think, once before, (laughs) Uh, and then sort Mm. of, like, it sputtered out. Um, But he gets back to it, and he does complete it, and what is fascinating to me about this is that, you know, allegedly he feels like he's retreading Carrie with Firestarter, but this book ends up being, uh, like, uh, in 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 many eerie ways, like a reproduction and rewriting of Carrie. In do, would you agree with that? First of all, y-
1: yes. Um, in in its like basic plot, um, but but I also think that that has to do with just Stephen King being so clearly tied to whatever his surroundings are. Mm-hmm. And I you know I don't get a sense of where he was in his life at this point, but you know we know that um Carrie and salem's lot you know directly come out of his job and what what he's doing at the time right and salem's mm-hmm. lot more is like what are his interests in a broad sense but it's bringing together you know vampire novels and and all or i mean dracula specifically and all that stuff and then uh, you know the shining is he went to colorado and went to a hotel and had an experience there or mm-hmm. like had a vibe there and was like wouldn't it be weird if there were ghosts right so, and the stand is, "dang, what if I wrote an American mythological novel after he had traveled across the United States doing this Colorado stuff after his book, and so you know i I get a strong sense here from what we 've learned about Stephen King and reading these novels in order that he 's always kind of locked into um, the vibe of whatever he 's kind of doing or whatever he 's experiencing or whatever and, and on the bonus episodes, we 've talked a few times about how very specific things from Stephen King's live have ended up in these books, you know, words or phrases or stuff like that. And, uh, so, so for me, it feels like almost the part of the reason for that retread or that recycling is that Stephen King in, I guess in 1978, 1979, is just not having, he, he, he does not seem to feel like he is having more and new and better experiences. And I mm-hmm. think that that contributes not just to the kind of carry retread or, or carry, revisionism going on here but also to the entire melancholy tone i mean this this novel something i find interesting here is that he is about the same age as johnny you know he's in mm-hmm. his early 30s here you know he's the same age as johnny at, when johnny wakes up from the coma johnny's 27 and i think he's in his early early 30s by the end of of the novel and the whole novel is about a man who believes that or, not believes the whole novel is about a man who lost time in this deeply melancholy relationship he has with Sarah because of that. And then kind of the world around him, he feels like politically socially, you know, he's, he, his, um, political imagination is out of the 1960s and the 1970s of a radical potential. And then he goes into a coma and comes back and we're, you know, running into the 1980s. And, Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of like, oh, you know, I've lost the, the time that mattered. You know, the time mm-hmm. when things could have happened to me that were important. And it's I'm I'm not trying to read everything biographically for Stephen King, and I don't think we should. But Stephen King is so clearly and, and openly writing his biography and writing the vibes of his characters through his own experiences so often that it's really hard not to wonder what's going on in Steve's life in 1978, 79, where he feels like he's lost his youth and his like potential in the world. Um, and so, so that to me is part and parcel of the revision of, of, of Carrie or revisiting the themes of Carrie or the ideas in Carrie is that he's deeply melancholic for his
0: twenties. Mm hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There is there there is a way in which um, Johnny feels closer to Stephen King himself than any other protagonist or character we've seen thus far. And I mm-hmm. think that even you get that even at the beginning where the fact that he's like a high school English teacher and uh, it's a little wish for because it's like it's, we get we get this from Sarah's perspective. It's like, oh, he's kind of strange and goofy, but all the kids really like him.
1: And he's tall and he's got a weird smile. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's got dark black hair and a bowl cut. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he wears got No, not all that stuff. But but yeah, no, you're right. A hundred percent. There is this kind of like. Um, the, Johnny is the best possible version of Stephen King, the teacher
0: for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just to sort of like lay out what I was saying when this, uh, is kind of a formal rewrite of Carrie. Um, here is another way of talking about like the premise of this, of this novel. Um, instead of, uh, an outcast young girl, a well-liked young man, with psychic powers and an unwell religious, and this is a crucial revision, but in, in a certain sense, supportive mother, grapples with the meaning of the sudden emergence of his talents, which he uses to avert rather than perpetrate a disaster. Um, and then just for good measure, literally the final scene of this novel is Sarah going to uh, visit Johnny's grave. And it is just clearly a uh a reference to the ending of de palma's film adaptation of carrie mm-hmm. yeah like just straight up like uh and that's also i think part of uh to just to touch on what you're saying right like what is going on in stephen king's life um like i i think that this is part of what makes this book feel like stephen king as stephen king is like he's referencing the movie adaptation of one of his books. Right. And not just referencing it, um, but rewriting it because of course the, the De Palma scene is famously like the, an ending jump scare. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and here it, Sets like it pulls that context in and it's like, oh, you've seen you've seen the Stephen King movies, but now you're reading a Stephen King book and oh, here's here's this thing that you associate with like one last scary detail. And instead, it's one last moment of melodrama of Sarah feeling um, some kind of potential psychic connection to Johnny even beyond the grave and, Mm. uh, you know, sort of savoring that the end.
1: Yeah, because she's she's touching his headstone in the the Mm -hmm. kind of final scene. Uh, something that I didn't think about at all, and I cannot believe I missed it just a minute ago when, when I was kind of running through the biographical, the weird biographical alignments. But when you just said emerging talents, I, it really kind of blew it open for me. The a, a third of this novel is about a man grappling with celebrity and his inability mm-hmm. to feel like he can fulfill what people want from him. Mm-hmm. right because all of these people after johnny you know kind of uh, wakes up from his coma and there's he has a couple of moments right where he touches someone and uh he he uh you know detects that he he knows that a woman's child has cancer right and that mm-hmm. another woman's house is on fire those are i think the two big ones mm-hmm. and so like some people write you know there's some um local news stories about it and things like that. But when he after he solves the Castle Rock murder, that's when people really start sending him things. And so, so much of this book is dedicated, like a really weird amount is dedicated to just Johnny living with his dad and receiving things in the mail and then writing about how weird he feels about not being able to do anything for these people um, mm-hmm. and not being able to kind of be the, the figure that they want him to be. And of course that's what Stephen King, you know, master of horror who is slowly but surely um, rising up in the world of literary fame at this time. Um, of course that's like how he feels about celebrity. Um, something that's interesting that I, I started watching the commentary for the Dead Zone film. And of course we're going to save all of this for the bonus out. So check that out for $5 at patreon.com slash range if you want to get involved. But the one thing I want to say about that is I, Uh, Got my Blu ray and I wanted to make sure it would work and everything. So I started the commentary. And one of the first things they talk about um, uh, Kim Newman, and I forget who the other person on the commentary is, but the Dead Zone film was the first Stephen King film to be marketed as a Stephen King film. Mm -hmm. All the other ones are, you know, uh, you know, Carrie is a Brian De Palma film, but it's just a movie, right? And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's the other major one here that I'm forgetting in the middle? I mean, The Shining would have come oh, out the by Shining. that
0: point as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. So The Shining is just, uh, you know, uh, I don't even think it's really, it might not have even been marketed as a Stanley Kubrick film. It might just <laughs> have been a movie. Um, But The Dead Zone was, you know, Stephen King's The Dead Zone. It, it's got Stephen King in the title for it. And so he is an emergent literary and multimedia celebrity at this point. So it's, it's impossible now after you've said that for me to think of this outside of that register, uh, cause it's so much <laughs> about celebrity and responsibility within celebrity.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting thing to talk about or consider, uh, at multiple points throughout this show, not just this episode, but this show in general, uh, this is a drum you've hit pretty hard. Th- the the science fiction uh elements or dimensions of stephen king's work um and how that i think one of the one of the points that you've made is it is under observed how much stephen king is pulling out of old science fiction um and and how much kind of sort of pulpy 1950s uh, early 1960s science fiction sort of new wave science fiction really is is undergirding kind of his outlook on a lot of things or like the way that he he reformats this genre in strange ways by by running it into the the bourgeois melodrama or just like pulling in a fantastical creature like Dracula and seeing what happens Um, Mm -hmm. this is the first book that King himself uh, sort of posits as science fiction, right? He he considers it a science fiction novel. Um, and I was curious what you thought about that, because in, in a lot of ways, it feels less like a science fiction novel than even Carrie does. Yeah, I, I
1: did you I, I'm curious about where that comes from. I mean, is that did you read an interview or something with Stephen King where he
0: uh, you brought that up. This is it's um, it was mentioned in uh, an article by Bev Vincent, who I mentioned actually, I think maybe yeah. last episode. Bev Vincent is kind of the um, the Boswell to Stephen King, uh, the the, the person <laughs> who uh has written the most about him, uh, who kind of is in his orbit and has interviewed him extensively, has all of these notes, um, and writes essays for Stephen King Revisited, which is Richard Chismar's website. Interesting,
1: yeah. The I... I mean I agree. I mean I think he's right. I think it's a science fiction text. I think that Stephen King is a predominantly science fiction author at this point. Mm-hmm. Um and I think honestly kind of across his whole career he's a science fiction author and and we, we will I will develop that thought more. Um, As this podcast goes on and maybe I'm wrong, um, but but something that has really shocked me through all the stuff that we've read, you know, as I've talked about nearly nearly every episode is how much he's reliant on science fiction and how little I think that he is a horror writer like that. That's actually really surprising to me at this point. That I, for the most part, the novels we have read, they have gore in them and they have violence, you know, and they have, they are in the body genre, you know, category, but they don't have, for the most part, the things that we associate with other horror novelists, which is the kind of radically supernatural, right? The thing that cannot be remediated into bourgeois politics or cannot be brought back into the social fold or cannot be explained Um, You know, that's that's part and parcel of the vast majority of the horror genre is this kind of radical excess that can't be brought into explanation. And every he is at pains in all of these books to explain everything. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, you know, even when he's at his most kind of horror horror ishness, um, I think that that's like horror, horror science fiction. Right. It's like watching the thing. Um, you know the John Carpenter film more than it is. Uh, you know reading a Clive Barker story in which things are never explained, <laughs> and <laughs> and when you read a Clive Barker story, you think if you want explanation, you're doing the wrong thing here. You you're interacting with the wrong, or you're mm-hmm. interacting with the story in the wrong way, right? But uh, but yeah, there. This I I would say I it makes sense to me that King thinks of this as an explicitly science fiction novel. Because of the amount of explanation that is here, you know, in Carrie there is explanation, but it's this kind of like at a a glance or sidelong stuff, right? These like excerpts from books that are explaining the TK phenomenon, all this stuff. But like on page 200 of my copy, which, uh, you know, good luck, everybody. But it's uh, his doctor... Who is explaining Wizak who is his like um ne- i guess his neurologist or his coma doctor? I don't know exactly what Wezak does,
0: yeah, yeah, Wezak is um we we haven't mentioned him thus far, but he's a key supporting character. he's another version of cool, older, smarter guy who's going to exposit things for us he's polish uh and one of the things that Johnny does when he comes out of the coma to sort of like. Not not prove that he's psychic. It's not like he does this uh, intentionally, but he finds out that uh, Weezak, uh, or he he touches Weezak, and he realizes that Weezak was. Uh, smuggled out of poland during world war ii and separated from his mother but and he he assumed his mother was you know lost was dead but uh he realizes oh no your mom like got amnesia and now she's on the west coast of the united states and she has another family and all this stuff um and then wiesek is like you know he's he's a neuroscientist right contemporary completely modern thoroughly informed neuroscientist uh or what have you who's then like my goodness we have like we stumbled upon the secrets of human TK or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The yes, and and I, I mean, we don't have time. We don't have time to honestly in this show to talk about all the weird stuff in this book. But the entire journey with Weisak through like his mother and and where she lives now and all that stuff. That's that's like seventy pages of this book that are just mm-hmm. like a little a little weird thing of like. You know, Johnny Smith, the psychic detective helping people out. But uh, anyway, but the 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 thing on page 200 um, uh, of my book is that is when Wysak is explaining the the dead zone. So what is special about Johnny Smith and why this book is called the The dead zone? Uh, I say at minute 50 or so is uh, (laughs) is that Johnny Smith, when he was a child, fell down and hit his head on the ice on some ice while ice skating and that created um some sort of brain damage basically um you know it it physically affected his brain um but didn't didn't hurt him in any way I don't, he didn't go into a coma or anything like that he might have had a concussion kind of unclear and uh what that did was create essentially a path in his brain in which his like thoughts and neurons do not run And this is kind of in in Stephen King's uh, science, you know, science fiction hand waviness. Mm -hmm. So when he gets in the car accident that puts him in a coma, his brain, instead of like using the normal, you know, neurological pathways, it has to compensate for this dead zone of like, you know, uh, the unthought, you know, the, the deep unconscious, whatever. And... Through through some process of that right when he was a child it gave, gave him kind of latent psychic abilities but after his coma it's supercharged because it's going through like all the unused parts of the brain or whatever and so mm-hmm. you can really feel this 1970s like science fictiony like pulled right from the headlines kind of thing right well scientists have found out we only use 10 percent of our brains mm-hmm. boo that kind of thing um, but but on, in this thing, you know, on this page two hundred, Isaac is just painstakingly going through the explanation here, right? Uh, he says, balancing this off, another tiny part of John Smith's brain appears to have awakened a section of the cerebrum within the parietal lobe. This is one of the deeply grooved sections of the forward or thinking brain. The electrical responses from the section of Smith's brain are way out of line for what they should be, huh? Here is one more thing, and, right? He just goes on and on and on of this like brain explanation from, you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> some sort of like article that Stephen King read in Newsweek <laughs> or mm-hmm. USA Today, um, and it, but but that's like the science fictioniness of it, right? For Stephen King, um, there are like science fiction, 1950s science fiction ideas that are like, here's a creature. Its from outer space, it has an explanation, but here but really, our story here is about dealing with it, you know, and that's the mm-hmm. kind of implicit science fiction in the in the king aesthetic universe when he's writing a science fiction novel for him, that just means way more explanation and way <laughs> more science um, uh-huh. or 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 you know scientific reasoning involved so it's really weird he he's really out of whack i know i know i've been uh, saying this for a while, but He's really um, in his own kind of universe of how you think about these kind of genres and how they work. But I think that also has something to do with how much he catches on um, as a popular writer. I mean, I, I do think it works in in really kind of profound ways.
0: Yeah, uh, I I agree with everything you just said, even though I've also said that I think it feels less science fiction-y than Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say part of the reason I came up with that feeling is that... Uh, carrie was forward looking in, in a particular way uh you know we get sort of similar like uh neurobabble or whatever about like what carrie's brain is doing and like what her body is doing right like wh- what her circulatory system is doing from the omniscient narrator um when she's exercising her psychic powers <clears throat> and then uh the novel kind of ends with uh this this realization, right, of the general public of like, oh, this is a thing that naturally occurs in people and there might be more Carrie Whites out there. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the dead zone is strange because it puts us into a uh, a, a speculative position, right? What if a... Uh, so what if human beings could see the future, right? Thing number one. Uh, Thing number two, what if one of these human beings who could see the future... Uh, realized that a politician might cause a huge disaster. Uh, you know, would would that person be uh, morally justified? Essentially, in I, this shows up literally in the novel. Like, what if you could go back in time and kill Hitler? Right, um, like that mm-hmm. is a question that is posed in this novel uh by Johnny as a way for him to think about what he may or may not do with regard to to what he he knows stilson uh is going to do uh, the politician mm-hmm. um so that's all well and good, uh but what's very strange is that this entire novel is set in the past, right, like this novel is uh, like there. It, it covers a huge amount of history, but that history never diverges. And it's all kind of like sewn up in uh, the fact that Jimmy Carter is going to win the, the election.
1: Yeah, it's really weird. Right. Like the, that, the, that basic conceit that this is all like, either directly contemporary to 1979 or before 1979.
0: Right. Right, exactly. So there's this weird way in which um, it is almost a novel of alternate history, but because of the actions that Johnny appears to take the like history does not deviate <laughs> um like the the nuclear war doesn't isn't going to happen uh later on right uh it just uh it ends normally johnny uh or johnny um jimmy carter uh is going to become president of the united states and we're going to move into like whatever the 80s are going to be uh we are thinking in 1979 um so i just i think that's strange especially like uh later on in the novel where time starts getting processed very, very quickly. Uh, and here's here's what I have called uh, to Cameron, Michael's trick. So uh, unfortunately, if you've listened to the podcast this far, you cannot test out this hypothesis for me. But if you know someone <laughs> who you can force to do this, I might actually see if my wife will do it for me. <laughs> um, uh, if you can get a copy of The Dead Zone and someone who hasn't read it... Um, I am very interested in what your impression would be of this novel if you started reading uh, at chapter 24, which is about 100 pages from the end, and just read from chapter 24 to the end, because my wager is that is the entire story in terms of plot. Like it is, it feels like something, it it feels like something that would come out of a Stephen King short story collection, uh, Mm -hmm. because chapter 24 is like uh, a series of letters that Johnny is receiving. So pause and back up just very briefly. Uh, we've already said one of the things that Johnny Smith does on his like weird episodic adventures is he becomes a guy who is like tutoring a high school student, um, uh, how like he's tutoring him on on reading. Um. So this kid, he's a he's a the kid of a wealthy sort of, uh, mill owner, I think, and sort of politically mm-hmm. connected guy. Uh. And he's like, I'll you know, you'll live in our our guest house and uh, you'll teach my son to read so he can get into you know the good Ivy League school or whatever. So Johnny uh, eventually gets a vision that uh, and again, this is how Carrie gets rewritten. Uh, it's like, it's not prom night. I think it's graduation night. There's a big graduation night party that happens at, like, this kind of roadhouse-y type establishment in the town. And Johnny has a vision that, uh, this place isn't up to code. Lightning is going to strike it because they don't have any lightning rods. And, like, hundred and fifty pages ago, we got one chapter from the point of view of a lightning rod salesman whom we never see again. Who walks into a restaurant we have never heard of and he tries to sell lightning rods to the guy who owns the restaurant and the guy doesn't buy them. And then we just like forget about it for 150 pages (laughs) and then hit this point. Johnny realizes, oh, there's going to be a huge fire here on like the big celebratory night for all these high school students and uh, they're all going to die, including the kid that I've been tutoring. And people are very resistant to this uh, because, you know, it's they're like, no, we want to have our party. And also you're like weird and probably just crazy. Uh, But it turns out he's correct. And the kids who do go end up um, dying in this fire. And Johnny is sort of. He he bounces back and forth between being kind of like publicly accepted and sort of like uh, uh you know people sending him fan mail and and asking him to help them with their problems, and being kind of a pariah or outcast because of his abilities. And after this point, he kind of goes into hiding because he's also uh like this is the moment where he realizes, yeah, this thing that I perceived about Stilson that he is going to hurt a lot of people. Um I like I know that. Right. Like I am I am sort of ethically bound to evaluate my actions with regard to the fact that I have this knowledge and I have to figure out what I'm going to do. So he goes into hiding and it just starts out chapter 24 of all of these letters from all of these other characters who are, you know, writing him and asking him how he's been since he's left. And uh, they give you all the exposition you need about everything that's happened earlier in the novel. They tell you, like, Johnny was in an accident for a while. He's got some sort of weird talent. He's done some other things, right? He Something about that Castle Rock case. Uh, it feels like a short story that implies kind of all of its backstory and then carries through straight up to the point where Johnny, you know, carries out his, his assassination. And... Finally, right, sort of my feeling about this novel and one of the things that makes it so formally strange is that it feels and I, I can't say that this is what happened and I don't think it's what happened, um, but it almost feels like Stephen King wrote this short story and then created the rest of the novel by just projecting backward and thinking like, OK, let's just like trace all of these characters sort of back to their starting points. And it's so strange, and again uh if if you have someone who um is willing to put up with both your bullshit and mine, uh ask them to read the dead zone from chapter twenty four to the end and and let me know what happens. The explanation that you have provided again,
1: i don't know either i don't you know I don't think, and you probably would have done the research and found out if Stephen King had ever said he'd done that, but it's the only explanation for this novel <laughs> like, like there's no other I can't, especially given Stephen King's method of like no outline, you know, no thoughts, just <laughs> vibes, <laughs> cocaine uh-huh. writing. Um, you know, I just don't I don't know how he got from point A to point B. Um The I will say this novel feels a little bit more refined in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. um the reason and the reason I bring that up in regards to the ending is oh. that This novel seems like Stephen King is aware of some of his pitfalls regarding race and gender. Uh And like he is trying to address them. Mm -hmm. And we know that's not true because he immediately starts doing it all again. Right. So, so, you know, historically, unfortunately, Stephen King does not get better in this regard, I don't think. But Mm -hmm. it is weird that this is an aberration that kind of dodges out of that. Right. So, you know. I you know, I think there's you know racist language in the book in, in the sense that Stephen King writes characters who have bad racial opinions and things like that, but you know there's not um a like advice giving black character right uh mm-hmm. who is there There's not a magical black character who exists here um mm-hmm. you know, so this is a little bit of a swerve from the last things. There is an inordinately wise and anecdote filled uh, is he is he from Vietnam?
0: Yeah, the Vietnamese uh, a landscaper.
1: Yeah, there, there's that guy. So there is like a racialized wise person. So you know, it's not that much of an aberration, but it is different. Um, in, you know, in a significant way. And Sarah is a much better written woman than any woman who has existed in any of Stephen King's books so up until this point, other than maybe um, oh, uh, the survivor from Carrie. I don't know why I'm blanking on her name. Oh, Sue Snell. Yeah, Sue Snell. I I love that you have it ready to go immediately. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's just it's it's all in the brain, man. (laughs) But but uh, but Sarah, right. She's much more of a well-rounded person. And, you know, unfortunately, her entire narrative is wrapped up in like this, you know, as we've been talking about, kind of melodramatic bourgeois novel trope of like. The woman who married a man who reminded her of her true love who was, you know, from her perspective dead mm-hmm. and uh, and now regrets it and is trying to do this. And they have, you know, of course, uh, later on, you know, they get together and they have sex one time, you know, to kind of fulfill that, you know, desire from years back. And then she goes back to her republican husband. <laughs> yes. Uh there's there's a little bit of like uh Stephen King capital L liberal uh, revenge fantasy here too uh-huh. that I think is probably needs to be worked out um
0: in some way. Like the <laughs> the English teacher cuckolds a republican.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean that literally is the fantasy here. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, and Sarah is, of course, just a, um, you know, vehicle for that. So, you know, we can't decouple that. But but it, in the quality of it, in the kind of, de- you know, depth of it, Sarah is probably the deepest and most complicated um, woman who has shown up in, in a Stephen mm-hmm. King novel. Um, and also the other kind of thing that we've talked about a whole lot of times is the relationship between intelligence and goodness and also like working class rootsness in goodness Mm -hmm. and though it's interesting to me that once Stephen king starts getting some money that those things start getting a lot more confused right Mm -hmm. so like the the extremely rich textile mill owner that you were just
0: talking about um he's got a heart of gold in him I was going to say you know, he's like textbook, like, you know, reasonable Republican, because yes. that's the other thing is that, like, he like he is also a huge Republican and connected to local Republican politics. So,
1: yeah, he is, you know, and he's helping out an immigrant. You know, he's helping uh, this, this Vietnamese guy, like, uh, have a job while he's taking his citizenship classes and. He pays off all of Johnny's medical debt, you know, kind of out of obligation, but, but still he does that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, he's just all about the facts, you know. He's all about, like, you know, good decisions in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, y- yeah, there, there, there's something going on here in Stephen King revising his kind of ideological positions And I don't know where that goes in the 1980s. I'm very interested in figure in finding this out, Um, Mm -hmm. you you know, but but it is interesting that you can kind of watch him become wealthier and then soften his political opinions about the wealthy.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, uh, Speaking of um, revising ideological positions, do we want to talk very briefly about Vera Smith? (laughs) Johnny's mom. Mm hmm. Uh, So I already mentioned Johnny's mom obliquely by saying she is unwell, religious, but supportive. Um, And that is true, right? Uh, uh, Vera Smith uh, is kind of a different version of Margaret White in the sense that she is, she has followed a hardcore evangelical Christianity like, over the side of the flat earth, right? And now she is, like, living on anti-Terra. I believe you called her, like, Johnny Smith's QAnon mom.
1: Yeah, Uh, I mean, it it is, um, well, thinking about this novel as being written in the late 1970s, right, we are on the cusp of the moral majority taking the United States, you Mm -hmm. know, and being the predominant, uh, political force of the the 1980s. We're about to run, you know, into the brick wall that is Reaganism, mm-hmm. um, into you know absolute unfettered free market fundamentalism um, with this kind of religious overtone to it. And so it's interesting to see Stephen King look at you know kind of a fringe religious movement from the 1970s, 1960s, and 1970s, and just to flesh out a little bit about what you were were talking about, right? You know. Vera Smith is a religious fundamentalist who also believes that there is a hollow earth and that Jesus lives there, right? Right. She's, you know, of this chariots of the gods, kind of, um, um, uh, the Celestine prophecy, like all of those uh, texts. Weirdly enough, I don't know if if this is you, Michael, I feel like you were probably like uh, the weird uh, high school kid who were like read about alchemy. But I was the weird high school kid who read like Chariots of the Gods and things like that. And about like weird, like alien uh, ancient civilization connections and stuff like that. Did you ever read any of that stuff?
0: Oh, oh, yes. I mean, I and the alchemy stuff, of course. But (laughs) yes, I, I did.
1: So so, yeah, you know, it's interesting to me that I didn't pick up on this at the time. Too, or that I didn't remember reading this book because I, certainly at the same time I was reading Stephen King, I was reading all that stuff too, and so I'm very familiar with this kind of milieu that um, that Vera Smith is in, you know, Nostradamus' prophecies and all of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and the story that we get. I love the part of the book where Johnny is in a coma because we get um, we we get what happens in Salem's Lot. Uh, But for for time, right? Mm -hmm. So in Salem's Lot, it's like you get this wandering camera, you know, I've belabored this point over several episodes, this wandering camera that goes around and shows you little vignettes everywhere else. You know, this is the part that everyone loves from the stand extended edition that's not in the original one, you know, about Mm -hmm. people dying and we get that exact same thing but that wandering camera is it's looking around of course at different things but it's also moving through time and so we're watching political movements in the 1970s happen as you know uh Johnny is in his coma but we're also slowly tracking Johnny's parents um and how Vera is just slowly but surely getting involved in writing letters to people all over the country and the world um and who are all giving each other conspiracy theories about the the unity of religion and politics and, um, you know, the, the hidden machinery beneath the world that makes things go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's being kind of taken in by snake oil salesmen who are like, you know, selling her pieces of the true cross or whatever, um, you know, the Shroud of Turin knockoffs mm-hmm. and things like that. And yeah, exactly I mean, yes, that's you know, the message I sent you was about, you know, his his QAnon mom because it's the exact same kind of imaginary mm-hmm. um, you know, of someone slowly but surely being sucked into a completely um parallel explanation for the world that she lives in and not being able to see beyond that horizon. And ultimately she dies because of it. Um, you know, she is convinced that her um what was it blood pressure medication is, mm-hmm. is is bad for her and she stops taking it and she um you know her health deteriorates and hard hard not to look at that and then think about um uh oh i can't i can't um i can't come up with the name of the thing but the the uh covid um oh, treatment yeah. that that was being sold um you know six months mm-hmm. ago 15 years ago six months ago <laughs> um oh, but right uh but you know I I don't know. So sorry. Sorry, that's, that's a long tangent, but yeah, the resonance there is very very strong for me.
0: Yeah, I mean I I think you're totally apt, totally accurate. Uh the other sort of thing like to to outline a little bit here like how is Vera Smith supportive? Um she thinks that Johnny's gifts are from God, right? And that he has something to to do with them. Um which is Uh, again, it's it's a kind of inversion of the relationship between Carrie and Margaret White. Um, But it's also interesting uh, because on the one hand, this is part of what makes Johnny so ambivalent about his powers is the fact that he comes out of a coma and his mom is kind of immediately like, "Ah, well, the Lord's charging it up good. Like, (laughs) let's get to the holy business. And he's like, I do not want, like, that's not what's happening here, mom. No, like, please, no. Um, But then eventually the thing that does make like the thing that kills her, right. Is she has, has a stroke or a heart attack or whatever, cause she's not taking her medication. Um, but she has that attack, uh, because she sees the press conference where where Johnny demonstrates his psychic ability, uh, apparently, you know, live on TV. Um, and it gets her mm-hmm. so worked up that she, she dies. And then he feels very guilty about that. Uh, and yeah, I think the, the, the Q and on parallel is really interesting, especially because of the, the kind of like the, the thing that pins down the end of this story, uh Greg Stilson, uh the the populist politician who comes out of nowhere, uh doesn't have any of kind of the, the bearing or sort of like the appropriate class markers to uh succeed in, in politics. Um and yet and everyone thinks he's a joke, right? Everyone laughs at him, his his uh, rallies are are well attended and they're raucous, and he's like uh, he's good with sort of like the the common people, right? The people on the street, they love him, right? They love seeing him do his like his weird thing, and he loves to make like crazy big promises that cannot possibly be, uh, you know, fulfilled. But people seem to back him anyway, and he's suddenly pushing all of these other more established candidates out of the way. And he also his his signature thing is wearing a a, a strikingly colored hat. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, everyone has run this into the ground, right? It, it, it feels Trumpian, right? It feels, uh, uh, presciently Trumpian. Um, but I would say, you know, part of the reason it feels that way is because King, like he, he can look at populism and he knows how populism might work. Uh, he said that he based Stilson on Huey Long, uh, who was uh, a famously sort of, uh, sort of over the top like a uh, uh, governor of Louisiana. Um, he's the model for the uh, politician character in Robert Penn Warren's novel All the King's Men. If you're familiar with that, um, but uh, yeah, Stephen King has said that he. Based Stilson uh, on Huey Long, uh, and nevertheless, uh, his rise kind of feels Trumpian in in this novel especially in instances where we get points of view of characters who might stop stilson by like exposing uh certain crimes he's committed or whatever um but then some of his toughs show up because he has like a t- he has a he has a he has a little like motorcycle gang that follows him around that does security at his events um the toughs show up and like uh, pressure people out right and they think like oh well someone else will take care of it
1: yeah, here's a question, a historical question for you, Michael. That that I do not know the answer to, and I didn't look up. So I'm just going to put it to you: Were there motorcycle gangs haranguing the Hamptons in the 1960s? Not to my knowledge, because <laughs> that's a big part of how Stilson recruits. You know, this like fake Hell's Angels group, right? Is that they have been harassing the Hamptons? Yeah. And I didn't. I, I. It feels like it's ripped from the headlines, but unlike the ten percent of the brain thing, which you know is still kind of in circulation and and has that kind of thing, I don't think we really have a fear of motorcycle gangs in the same way. <laughs>
0: It's very weird. Yeah. So th- this is how this is how Stilson gets his like little gang is he like he gets himself to be some sort of like small local politician and then eventually he becomes the mayor of this little town and he institutes like a... a A sort of program for uh, minor offenders, like people who disturb the peace and stuff. Uh, And then he uses this to like meet up with uh, sort of unsavory characters. And he's like, Hey, here's how you go legit is you start doing stuff for me. Uh, So it's that kind of that kind of dynamic. And that's how he gets his his motorcycle gang.
1: Yeah, they, um, what, what's interesting too, I mean, uh, you've already made, you know, kind of talked about the parallels between Stilson and uh, real life figures, but what's interesting to me is that he is just as much, you know, a a real president we had, you know, now, now post 2020, um, but he's also Randall Flagg again, Mm -hmm. right? The first time that, or the, the first campaign stop we see for him in, in when, um, Uh, Johnny sees him, he's wearing a shirt that says on one side, like, give peace a chance, and on the other side, mom's apple pie, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's the same thing as what Flag has on his vest, like, conceptually the same thing, right? It's like a peace sign, and then you know, like a a war vet Uh thing. Um, You know, it's this idea that what is the most dangerous um, political figure it's someone who is, like, not mappable to, to the domain that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stilson, you know, is a ostensibly progressive figure in a lot of ways. Um, he wants to, He does want to bag up all of our pollution and shoot it into space.
0: Yeah, that's the that's sort of the really interesting thing about Stillson ideologically is that when Stephen King tries to imagine in you know the late '70s what is what is the new populism going to look like, he comes up with um, this kind of working class bravado, but it is committed to. On the on the one hand, kind of a traditional moralism. Um, one of the big things we find out about uh about Stilson is that he sort of he he talks about like the politicians, you know, taking their kickbacks or like having affairs, right? And he's like exposing like politicians who who are having affairs and getting them uh you know pushed out of office or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh and then sort of his second thing is like a a really sort of wild commitment to the environment. Mm-hmm
1: and uh and to add to not just affairs but he gets one kicked out for being gay oh
0: yes that too
1: Mm -hmm. so so it's you know it's a uh is a traditionalism in a lot of different ways right is it's it's a conservative it's a weirdly enough i mean this is the thing is it's a social conservatism and then a liberalism basically everywhere else and I guess the kind of um, unity there, the thing that maps onto is, you know, he's almost Nixonian in that way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, Nixon gave us the EPA,
0: <laughs> you know,
1: at, w- at one point that was bipartisan.
0: Yeah. I mean, would would you would you be surprised, Cameron, to know that the name Stillson comes from still plus Nixon? <gasps> ah, no, I wouldn't be surprised about that. But
1: uh, but yeah, anyway, so uh, I, I don't really know what to do with Stilson one way or the other. It is very funny that he is taken down by, um, you know, because as I said at the beginning summary, the very accurate summary, Johnny shows up, he finds out where Stilson's going to be because Stilson has this very populist kind of um, go, thing where he goes to every major and minor city of his, within his constituency and, like, hangs out there one weekend, you know, in a circuit. And Johnny just goes to one of these, like, a VA hall, uh, you know, or, or no, it's like the DMV and he goes and waits on the second floor and he's just going to shoot him with a rifle like you know mm-hmm. um you know Johnny has found out he has a brain tumor and so he has one last task right before he dies basically and uh you know in his mind mm-hmm. and so Stilson in he's being fired at by Johnny um you know by this rifle and he picks up a child and uses it as a human shield and a young man with a with a uh well, the camera with a Nikon, very specific, with mm-hmm. a Nikon, takes a photo of it and then runs away from these goons that that are protecting Stilson and is able to process and then distribute this photograph and it and it takes it, you know destroys his political career. And the th- that might be the most science fictional thing about it, because I think that in, in the year, you know, in the political register that we live in now, I think you could probably have someone, a well-known politician, and, and probably several well-known politicians mm-hmm. who could ha- use someone as a human shield, and it probably would do nothing to damage their reputation. Mm-hmm. And that's the weird part.
0: That was the part where I was like, this wouldn't work today. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Like, this wouldn't be enough.
0: No, it would Um, absolutely, like, there would be a a counter-narrative, like, within minutes.
1: Yeah. That child dove in front of him. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he was grabbing that child to whip it out of the way. Right. No, he thought thought that the child was the target, and...
1: (laughs) Yes he's picking him up and running him away uh so yeah anyway that that's the the kind of like upshot to it and that that's the the thing that felt weirdest about it, yeah um, um any
0: other plot summary stuff no i i think uh I think I've covered just about everything I think so too um you got some sort of uh
1: favorite kingism you want to talk about.
0: I do. Uh and that will probably fill out uh, some additional bits of of any sort of plot stuff. Uh my favorite kingism uh comes from late in the novel actually post post uh Michael's trick, post chapter 24. This is uh from that chapter where it's it's made up entirely of letters that Johnny is receiving from from various other characters. So it's page 349 in my book. Uh, this letter is from Chuck, who is the young man whom Johnny had been tutoring up until this point. And so, uh, Chuck, you know, he he got better at reading. Good on him. Uh, and then uh, he goes off to college, and he's having a great time. And he writes this letter to to Johnny, and he ends his letter with a a postscript uh, that mentioned that follows up on something that he said earlier, uh, which is that he has a foxy chick. <laughs> now mm-hmm. <laughs> he has a girlfriend mm-hmm. um so p.s <clears throat> the foxy chick's name is stephanie wyman and i have already turned her on to something wicked this way comes she also likes a punk rock group called the ramones you should hear them they are hilarious c so two things happening here <laughs> uh actually when i when i hit this right i i took a picture and i like i dm'd it to you on discord because <laughs> i like had this moment i was like this is the state change right yeah. like this paragraph is the state change <laughs> stephen king becomes stephen king uh the two stephen king things here uh one is this idea that Chuck, who is, uh, for the record, like a popular jock, right? He's a popular, good hearted jock. That's who that character is, um, who didn't like reading, but kind of got into it because he had the right teacher. He also
1: had like trauma from his high expectations father. In yes. Rome there, too. And Johnny, like miraculously cures him of that.
0: Right. Yeah, that's actually that. so part of you know, Chuck is is kind of a sad character in that. Yeah, like that's part of his issue is that his dad wants him to succeed so much at everything that like if he hits like just a little bit of resistance on something, he he crumples. Um mm-hmm. but Johnny miraculously gets him over over that. And so he he goes off to college and he spends his freshman year like introducing girls to Ray Bradbury. <laughs> and not only does he do this, but it works. Like Girls are really into reading Ray Bradbury with him, which is just very funny. It's very funny to me, and also, uh, worth pointing out for some reason, this is like the third or fourth reference to Something Wicked This Way comes in this novel. Uh, mm. if you haven't read Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, it's about two boys in a small town in Illinois, um, and an evil circus shows up basically, uh, and very. Early on at the beginning of The Dead Zone, while Sarah is at uh, the carnival with Johnny, uh, she they go through, I think, the House of Mirrors together. And she specifically, it, it's like it reminded Sarah of the House of Mirrors in Something Wicked This Way Comes. So hmm. thing number one. Thing number two, the lightning rod salesman who shows up and then disappears. uh, And then the lightning rods turn out to be important later on. This is also like there is a character in Something Wicked This Way Comes who is a lightning rod salesman who disappears. Um, So King is pulling in this very interesting intertext uh, because in this, I I couldn't figure out what was going on with it until something you said earlier where it's, uh, you know, King kind of reflecting on his lost potential Uh, And that is actually what, even though Something Wicked This Way Comes is ostensibly about the two little boys uh, who are the the main characters, um, the emotional kind of plot of that novel is about one of the boy's fathers Uh, Who is older right he had his son when he uh, was older than um, was normal and he feels bad because he kind of like lost the time when he could have been like a good active father to his son and one of the things that the evil carnival ends up doing is it preys on all of the adults in towns uh, feelings of lost youth so I think maybe Mm. that's what's going on there so that's one King thing the other King thing is here it is baby it's the Ramones (laughs) like Stephen King has, has hit his stride in terms of music. He is going to listen to Uh, the Ramones are going to write songs for the Pet Cemetery film adaptation in like a decade. Uh, And uh, you know, the Ramones are going to take off really big. This is 1979. So um, it's, it's the year before Phil Spector becomes their producer, right? Hmm. Uh, It's like right about the time that I want to be sedated becomes a a big hit. So yeah, Again, right, like state change, Stephen King discovering new bands, and he's putting those bands into the into the minds of his fictional college students to show how hip they are.
1: Hmm. I was just struck as you were talking about carnivals and Stephen King and things like that, that I feel extremely this is a pure Johnny Smith vibe, right? I have no reason to believe this. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you said something. It has set wheels in motion in my mind that are deeply disturbing, right? I, I saw a glimmer of the past future. Uh-huh. I think Stephen King might be responsible for Juggalos.
0: You know, um, I tweeted more or less this. Oh, is that <laughs> true? If you go to the Range Touch Twitter account, um, hold on, uh, and you search for Juggalos, you will find that on December 23rd of 2020... I said uh, I, I made a post there. Nineteen seventy nine marks the first implication that Juggalos exist in the King suggesting Pennywise himself may be simply a lost or outcast member of ICP. The reason I made this joke was because in a uh, brief moment, when Johnny is reflecting on all of the like wild conspiracies that his mother believes, he refers to them as a quote dark carnival of craziness. It's I am
1: I am as they say. Shooketh, like mm-hmm. absolutely, but be- bewildered. Ooh, I don't. Okay, I don't want to think about it anymore. <laughs> um, my 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 uh my thing here. I'm not gonna read all of it, but uh if people check out the novel, you you get a lot of it. At one point, Johnny, after he has touched Greg Stillson and gets this kind of flash of like something dangerous in the future, he gets this idea that Greg Stillson is going to cause a nuclear war once he is president at some point in the future. And he just gets a little glimmer of this when he shakes his hand at a, um, at a campaign rally. Oh, Michael, we did not talk about the fact that he shakes Jimmy Carter's hand.
0: Yes. It's weird. This is literally what happens in the novel. Johnny Smith emerges from a coma, knows that he has, like, developed psychic powers that are triggered by, like, skin-to-skin contact with people right, feels deeply nervous and ambivalent about these powers. And then, as a hobby, (laughs) starts going around New England during an election year to political rallies to shake politicians' hands. Yeah. It's like getting some mixed messages from Johnny here, (laughs) like... Mm -hmm. But yeah, no. He meets Jimmy Carter and shakes his hand, and he realizes that Jimmy Carter is going to win the election.
1: Yeah, and he says, "You're going to be president." Jimmy Carter says, "Yeah, I know." (laughs) (laughs) Which is, it's, it's, uh, it's really Jimmy Carter's. I you had me at hello moment. (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the anyway the the. After he touches uh, Greg Stilson and kind of realizes, oh, shit, this guy might be president, he's trying to dig up some just facts on Greg Stilson, which are kind of hard to come by. And so he goes to the library and does this kind of montage of of stuff. And he reconstructs Greg Stilson's entire life. And he tells this story about Greg Stilson as a, like a youth or in his 20s, maybe, that he becomes a rainmaker, you know, literally someone who uh, goes and helps pray for rain Mm -hmm. and the way he does it in this is in this really theatrical manner where he like gets in the back of a truck with like a loudspeaker and is like you know yelling uh, hosannas or whatever right Mm -hmm. all the way across the countryside in front of everyone and then eventually it rains uh, you know a few days into that and you know all the weather people say yeah of course it was going to rain we knew it was going to rain but then people kind of you know ascribe to him these abilities Mm -hmm. but what's interesting about it uh is that the, is the additional story they he says all right just pay me whatever's fair and the farmers give him like $17 and then he uses those $17 to take out an ad in the paper shaming them for it mm-hmm. and then um and then they basically uh, eventually there's just all this kind of like money moving around and they run him out of town he gets run out of town eventually after he gets paid off but what's so interesting to me about it is that Stephen King does this kind of, like, the the finding out the information is interesting and it's a well-told story and all this kind of stuff, but it sets Greg Stilson up as as a fake Johnny Smith, as this kind of, like, you know, parallel character, uh-huh. which, as we talked about in The Stand, Stephen King, Stephen King seems really interested in doing, creating parallel cal- characters who kind of ping off of one another. And Greg Stilson is a you know, a huckster at every single moment, he's going to be taking what you believe and trying to sell you a more, um, explosive, uh, you know, um, um, I don't know, a snake oil version of it, right? He was a Bible salesman beforehand too. Mm-hmm. And like, we see him, you know, do evil stuff as a, like, truly evil stuff is a
0: Bible salesman. I mean, his, he novel. shows up in the in the prologue of the novel. Like, we get two parts, parts in the prologue. One is Johnny's, like, ice accident, right, when he falls down and hits and hits his head when he's a kid. And then the contemporary event in Greg Stilson's life is that he, like, is a traveling Bible salesman, and he shows up at a farmhouse in, like, Oklahoma or something. The people aren't home, but there's a dog, and the dog growls at him, and he murders the dog
1: yeah oh and he like beats a woman he like tells a, a another story about um like just beating this young woman you mm-hmm. know um brutally so i mean we it's li- quite literally you know uh save the cat logic mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like we know greg stillson is bad because he is bad to a dog and a woman mm-hmm. um uh there's there's some uh moral equivalency going on here but the uh yeah that's all to say right in every kind of moment greg stilson is even put into the, the kind of logic of of the world that um, johnny lives in which is this like kind of pseudo uh, parallel ideological world in which people put belief in him and Greg Stilson is a person who uses that for evil and Johnny is a person who tries to use it for good even when it's not always good or doesn't always, you know, create the best outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that kind of parallelism and it's also the way that story is told that that really kind of makes this a good old Kingism for me. I think we're going to see that show up a whole lot more. Stephen King loves, especially getting into his later career, loves to have someone just tell a story about something that happened and mm-hmm. that, like, you know, sets up
0: context for something coming on later. Oh uh, what in the king of Uh, there are a couple of connections here. Uh, I wrote them all down. I don't know if you, or I, I, I noted the ones that I saw. I don't know if you noticed any others, uh, but we've talked a little bit about Stephen King, like the, the King's geography, right? His kind of fictional new England. Um, and very early on in the novel, Jerusalem's lot is mentioned, right? Uh, Johnny Mm -hmm. is like talking maybe to his father or something and they're giving directions on how to get somewhere and it involves like going past the sign for Jerusalem's lot, um, at one point, Stovington Prep is mentioned, which is the school where Jack Torrance, uh, taught in The Shining before they, the family moves to Colorado, uh, Castle Rock, uh, appears here, uh, like it would not seem, if you were reading this fresh, Castle Rock would not seem particularly important, uh, but Castle Rock becomes a recurring location. Uh, multiple stories are going to take place in Castle Rock and, uh, Obviously, they made a TV show about it called Castle Rock.
1: But uh, unlike Gary, which like continues to exist in the Stephen King verse, Castle Rock is destroyed at some point.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's weird. like It's weird that this is how Castle Rock gets introduced uh, mm-hmm. be- because, you know, it's like it's the first Castle Rock story. But really what they mean is like the 25 pages at the middle of this novel where Johnny Smith is trying to catch a serial killer is the first Castle Rock story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, in the early 90s, we're going to get the last Castle Rock story, which is a big doorstopper novel, Needful Things. Um, there's also a moment later on, uh near the end of the novel when uh Johnny is trying to give his uh warning to to the uh, graduating class about how they shouldn't go to the roadhouse because it's going to burn down. um there's a a girl like everyone is kind of in an uproar, right? People are sort of shouting things and so on. And there's like a girl in the crowd who says uh, oh, he's like he's like that girl from that movie, Carrie like explicitly we get acknowledgement that there are Stephen King stories within Stephen King stories. Uh, Maybe people know the movies, uh, but you know, if, if the movie Carrie exists, then maybe the book Carrie also exists. In which case in this world with Johnny Smith, there is someone in Maine named Stephen King. And this, this sort of like strange situation will become very important once we get to the, the, you know, latter half of the dark tower series. Yep.
1: Um, the, the only thing I would, that, that is not on your list here that I noticed is that, uh, the cemetery that Johnny is buried in, the
0: Marston's are also buried there. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. I noticed, that. And
1: there are other names too, but I didn't recognize them. Did, did you No, but uh, he.
0: it's like, it's mentioned like Marston and the idea is like, you know, old new England name. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, if if the man is uh, like pulling in Jerusalem's lot and carry right, I think he's he's got to know what sort of resonance Marston is going to have.
1: Yeah, I just didn't know if so. It's um, Birches, Bowdens, Pillsbury's, and Marstons.
0: Oh, uh, Pillsbury is interesting because Pillsbury is um, that's a family name. Someone like one of his parents, uh, his mother or his father, I cannot remember, but that's. Um, like a family name is Pillsbury it's actually I think it's maybe his mother's maiden name uh again like welcome to the podcast where I let people know (laughs) that I know what uh Stephen King's mother's maiden name was
1: um the uh yeah the only reason I I bring those up is that you know uh that could be you know like someone from the Jerusalem's Lot short story and I would never remember that but Mm -hmm. but you know you might have um, but yeah, a lot. Of, I would say this is the most King of Versey kind of thing so far, in the sense of he is clearly connecting his main together mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, explicit and clear ways, and that is only going to get more dense, you know, as we as we get the kind of network map. Um, maybe maybe I should start. I bet there's like some cool infographic out there that shows all this. But you want to run through uh, Uncle
0: Stevie's mixtape real quick? Sure thing. Uh, first up, we have "Thank God I'm a Country Boy" by John Denver. This is a song that plays uh, that Greg Stilson plays at his rallies, actually, uh, which is sort of like part of the the faux populism. Or it's it's this is what's weird is that um it, it, I would say faux populism, but Greg Stilson actually is like you know rough and tumble, like worked his way up. He's just like a monstrous individual, <laughs> so he is in yeah. fact a country boy. Yeah, <laughs> he's just evil. He's-
1: yeah, and he is a true populist and like not in the negative sense. Mm-hmm. Um he he seems to I mean he seems to be a strong independent candidate. He,
0: he literally creates his own political party. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, just an evil person. <laughs> yeah. Um uh uh I would say that yeah, this is a this is a good song. It does make you think about uh you listen to this song and you're like, yeah, John Denver is grateful that he is a country boy, three stars. Hmm. Um, the second song, uh, is On the Road Again by Mr. Bob Dylan. Uh, this is not a good song. Surprise. Uh, you know, we, we don't have, uh, our, 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 uh, loathing of Dylan is, is, I, I achieving a kind of legendary status. I think, um, I like Bob Dylan more than you. This is one of the Bob Dylan songs that I just really can't get my hands on because it's it's uh it's that sort of little subgenre of Bob Dylan song that sounds like every other Bob Dylan song. And the lyrics are also just like total nonsense, right? It's like my father's wearing silly hats. My mother went to the laundromat. The garden man stepped on a rake tomorrow. I will eat a cake. Harmonica solo. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. Uh, one star, not a great song.
1: The only Bobby D I respect is Robert De Niro. I'm going to say <laughs> that. Um, I, got, I got two ones here. I didn't even pick either of these up. I, was, I actually thought we were kind of in another scenario where we only had one or two songs, but uh, you put them on here, so I checked them out. A uh, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On by Jerry Lee Lewis. Great song. Mm-hmm. Three stars. Uh, and then Back in the USSR by The Beatles, which is Terrible. Like much of the Beatles. <laughs> there are some great. Be- the Beatles for me are truly five stars, one star. Mm-hmm. There are no three star Beatles songs. There's nothing you can measure them by.
0: I like how I like uh, the, the sort of landscape we have here of like total objection. Bob Dylan, uh, like contiguous to Bob Dylan, the Beatles. But like the, the, the further you travel through Beatles land, uh, the more you're going to get some sunrise.
1: Yeah, there's like uh, Maxwell Sil- Silverhammers in there. Yeah. Eleanor Rigby's in there. That's a five star song.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But back in the USSR,
0: one star song. <laughs> what if the Beach Boys were made fun of by us? Oh, you know who's good? The Beach Boys. Five
1: stars. <laughs> uh, uh, the uh, and also I just wrote in here the Ramones in general, and I'm going to give them four stars.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the Ramones, they are, quote, funny as hell. Yeah, they, uh, you know what? He's right. He's
1: not incorrect. Chuck is absolutely correct. They are, quote, funny as hell,
0: uh, end quote. Uh, so, uh, sort of any, any sort of like final thoughts or, or parting ideas that you wanted to circle back around to? You wanted to explain, uh, anything about maybe orange juice? No. Does that come clear? Uh huh
1: uh yeah it should be clear to everyone uh basically in the dead zone in this novel anytime he reads the future he either has a perfectly clear well this is what happens we get several images that seem to have nothing to do with one another and then the character of johnny will say your house is on fire (laughs) because he is able to make an interpretive leap that um we as readers generally are not able to do which is actually kind of a w- interesting way to do that right that, mm-hmm. you know that this very kind of uh, 1970s literary theory <laughs> you know kind of idea that like language is just cannot capture whatever johnny smith is doing here and so we get an approximation you know b- because he when he see um for example his his image he sees of stilson I- doing the nuclear war He Mm -hmm. also sees an image around that same time or in that same touching of Stilson holding the child in front of him. And the child is wearing like a blue shirt and like striped pants. Mm -hmm. But but the text that we get for that image is just like blue, blue, yellow, stripe, blue, yellow, stripe, blue, yellow, stripe. And Johnny can't figure it out. Right. And we can't either because it's just
0: words. Well, and it because it turns out like what he is seeing is the child being held in front of Stilson as a human shield through the scope of his rifle.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, so.
0: Right. And that's sort of how that all falls out together. And that's actually pretty neat. And also, uh, you know, bouncing off something you mentioned uh, I don't think it is explicitly stated by Johnny uh, that he thought it was going to be a nuclear war until after Johnny's already done the act and and died, right? It's like a letter that he writes to Sarah that we get immediately after where he's like, Sarah, I think Greg Stilson was going to cause a nuclear war uh, yeah. because the vision is not like, and then we see the bombs falling and mushroom clouds. It's all stuff mm-hmm. like, you know, fire and smoke and like torn metal and death and and it's, uh you know, for a while it's not clear what Stilson Wilson might in like, you know, what might end up happening because of him. It's just something bad.
1: Yeah. It's absolutely kind of in this thriller novel mode of like, we know, we know the character knows that something truly bad has happened here, but we don't know exactly what that is. Um, so yeah, be on the lookout for uh, orange juice, uh bubble gum, you know,
0: <laughs> all, all some terrible sounds.
1: happens to you. If something terrible happens to you relating any of those things, uh i need to cash in on that immediately so
0: just let me know <laughs> i will uh and hopefully nothing terrible happens to me before we meet again next month when we will be talking about fire starter
1: so i haven't started reading this book yet but i know you have and is it as rough as i imagine
0: it's going to be i bet it's going to be rough <laughs> <laughs>
1: when does he start using cocaine
0: uh we we are in cocaine years now okay okay um, got it yeah it would have been uh like 78 uh 79 uh, would would be when that starts happening so
1: yeah. yeah yeah i mean rough in the sense of like i can think of some representational choices that are made that are um that are that are shocking to my mind <laughs> and i haven't read it in 20 years and so i imagine they are going to be pretty pretty bad uh, when we get there so um, I think this might be uh, beyond rage, our first hurdle, uh, yeah. like of a thing to get over. But um, we're, we'll find out next time, uh, Michael. Where? Uh, oh, where can they find me on the internet? Because you're the host of this show.
0: Yeah. Ooh, Ooh. Uh, Got a little plot twist there. Only Johnny Whoa. Smith could have seen that coming. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. You can find Cameron at C Kunzelman. You can find out more about just King things and all the stuff we do here uh, as part of Range Touch uh, on Twitter at Range Touch. Uh, you'll also find the link there to our Patreon, Patreon.com/RangeTouch, where if you uh, support us um, at the five dollar level. Um, You will gain access to the bonus episodes of just King things where Cameron and I uh, reconvene and we talk about a film adaptation of a Stephen King work. Usually the one like as close as we can get it uh, potentially to whatever we've read for that month Uh, for this month. Um, When you when you are hearing this, uh, if you went to the Patreon and you you gave us that five dollars, you would gain access not only to our backlog of bonus episodes for everything we've done thus far, uh, but our newest one on David Cronenberg's film of The Dead Zone. Uh, And hopefully that's good. We haven't recorded it yet. (laughs) We haven't recorded it yet.
1: I've watched the first scene because I had to make sure that my Blu-ray worked because I ordered a Region B Blu-ray. I'll get into this on the bonus episode <laughs> if anyone's interested in it, but uh, I got to see um, uh, Christopher Walken's Stephen King
0: haircut. <laughs> yes.
1: And, and that's all I'll say about that so far. <laughs> Tune into the bonus episode to hear more about his haircut.
0: Yeah, uh, if, if it is not clear at this point, like bonus episodes have some great content because it's all of the weird stuff that we would talk about on a regular episode uh, routed into the the Stephen King film and all of the bizarre things that happens in in what I guess, you know, kind of becomes its own weird subgenre. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things that, you know, just might be interested in hearing about on the Patreon uh, If you back us at $3 a month, you'll get access to the podcast feed for Too Much Future, our show where we play through the Fallout games and talk about them, very similar to this, um, as well as notes for Game Study Study Buddies. And even $1 uh, will help us a lot. We are currently trying to get $1,025. Patreon supporters and when that happens we will in earnest begin work on a new podcast series of 13 episodes during which we will read the epic uh multimedia extravaganza web comic thing uh Homestuck and I have read it before uh Cameron has not and we are going to work through the whole thing and talk about it uh in kind of the way we work through the Stephen King novels um so if you wanted this but for just the wackiest bullshit internet thing uh that you could think of in the last 10 15 years uh then by all means like please help us reach that goal and uh we would love to talk to you about homestuck until (laughs) next time cameron uh why is the? why is this happening because we
1: are forced to do this for the world and also for steve Years later,
0: <sighs> It's another fine day here at my stately lakeside manor. On mornings like this, I love to put on my crew sweater and sit on the veranda, feeling the wind caress my totally bald head. Life has treated me well since I quit the fool's game of Stephen King podcasting and began an ASMR channel. Now to engage with the ASMR community's latest hot trend. Chewing bubble gum while drinking orange juice. Experts say it's a choking hazard, but I'll do anything for the engagement. Oh no! Boca.